I'm Dorianne Wheel. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. So hello, everybody, and welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. I had to take this opportunity in London to meet with an author who's just published a book. The name of the author is Arnie Whitkin, and it was the most intriguing title to me because it's called It's Not a Big Thing in Life. Now, this relates very, very much to what we're going through now in the pandemic. And a lot of what I've been talking about is how do you prevent the buildup of post-traumatic stress and how do you promote post-traumatic growth? How do you get a perspective? How do we navigate this crazy landscape that we find ourselves in? And I just realized that we often find ourselves in crazy landscapes, maybe not as challenging, of course, as the one we're in, but life happens. Life happens to everyone. We go through predictable and, of course, unpredictable life events like this one that are really, really challenging. And when I saw this book, I thought to myself, okay, is there a way to harness some of what we can learn through this in order to improve our present and our future? Are there lessons through challenges? And indeed they are, but how can we make them work for us really positively? And even more importantly than that, what are these lessons and how do we learn them? Well, I want to say that this isn't necessarily what you would call a textbook. It's not prescribed, although I think it should be at a university level, but it's a book about life. And just to say that it has been really well researched because Arne, welcome to you. Arnie Whitkin is here um, with us. Just to say you've done the research, you've done the research on yourself. You've shared some of the precipitating factors that have generated the lessons. You have coached and you have sat with people endlessly throughout your life for many hours and have helped them to understand the wisdom that you've learned. You've shared your wisdom. You've tried to see whether this wisdom resonates with them. And indeed, you've followed up with so many people in putting some of this into practice. So what I really liked about it is that it's very action-orientated. It may be based on thoughts and on philosophy, but it's also based on experience. And it's primarily a how-to-life book. And we're just delighted to be able to have you on Thrive with Dr. D so that you can share some of these lessons with us. Thank you very much, Laurie. It's a great pleasure to be here. As Shakespeare said, sweet are the uses of adversity. And very often the greatest growth comes from the greatest, apparently, disaster at the time. So once we get over the difficulties, we can see huge growth. Right. So Ani, just as a start, I mean, we can hear and I know that you're happy to, to share this, to talk about it, that you do have a challenge with your voice, which also related to part of your own life's journey and adversity. Yeah. Um, 20 years ago, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And when they removed the thyroid, unfortunately, the cancer had spread to the laryngeal nerve. The laryngeal nerve controls the vocal cord. So when the vocal cord is paralyzed, my two vocal cords couldn't come together. And I spoke in a high-pitched whisper. Fortunately, 
about three years later, I met a doctor in Boston who invented an operation whereby they wedge cortex behind the paralyzed vocal cord near to the, what's called the midline. So when I, when I speak, my other vocal cord moves together so they can vibrate, but there's still a gap. So my voice is approximately 60 to 70% of what it should be. Be. Okay, I wanted to highlight that because these days with what's going on, people have all sorts of assumptions and ideas and imagine, you know, what it is. And I think that they need to know that this is what happens and you're talking to us and you do use the opportunity to share some of your wisdom anyway. So I want to know, on. I mean, I have known Arnie, I must declare myself, for a very, very long time and have shared in many of your sayings, many of your wisdoms, and I also want to say that I've laughed a lot. I think one of the things that people enjoy most about you, Arnie, or as well as many other things, is your amazing sense of humor, your satirical humor, your use of words, which you've brought to bear in some of these lessons. So I've heard you spout forth and share at dinner tables and in various other platforms. So it was exciting to see that you'd actually written a book. What precipitated the writing of the book? Why did you do it? You know, probably for the last 60 years or so, I've been contemplating the universe, writing down my thoughts. I've got a whole file of bits of paper that I've written everything down, observations, feelings, and about two and a half years ago or three years ago, I decided to put them all together in a Word document. So I, I categorized everything and I put them down and there were about 20 pages of Word of a whole lot of, I would say, instructions in a sense. And I thought, well, this is going to be for my grandchildren. So I headed the file considerations for my grandchildren. A friend of mine's granddaughter was going to university and I said, these are some of the things I learned. A great many of them when I was between 16 and 22. So have a look, see what you think. So she took them away and she said, no. She said, this cannot be for your grandchildren. This has got to be for the whole world. How wonderful. So I said, well, the whole world, that's a big place. But then I started thinking, okay, let me formalize it. So I started formally writing the book. And I got to about 30,000 words, but I decided it was only bullet points. So I started fleshing it out with stories. And, and so I rewrote the book. I got it edited. And then I showed it to a publisher. He said, great, Tony, but there's no hook. So I rewrote it again, more fleshing out, more stories, more editing. And today, I think it's perfectly readable. Right. It is perfectly readable. And we want to hear, we're really wanting to hear what some um, of these lessons are, the condensed version, not condensed, 
I think it's quite vertical because you give the story and you give the lesson and then you talk about how you learned the lessons. So we're here to hear what some of these lessons are. The book starts off and you use the analogy of a three-legged stool, you say, and there are three aspects of life that relate to happiness. And then there are a few criteria that you list that are fundamental to success. Can you talk about the three legs of the stool and then the, your criteria of success? Well, I'm saying for there to be so-called happiness, the three legs are love, health, and money. Now, money does not mean your private jet or a fancy home. Money means a good job, a steady income, so you can pay the bills at the end of the month. And without that, you've got, you lose self-esteem. In fact, how do you live? So money is fundamental to happiness, enough money. I want to just stop you there before you go on to the other two, because I'm relating to many people who are listening to this, Arnie, and they're saying, do you realize that so much of the loss that we have had to, of course, there's been loss of life, loss of certainty, loss of physical contact, loss of predictability, but there's also been huge loss of jobs and loss of money. So I want to take the opportunity while you're talking about the fundamental nature of having enough to pay the bills. What can you say at this point to people who are struggling with worrying about their money and the job that they might have been retrenched on? Okay, this is a huge problem, Dori, and I must say that I empathize with anybody who's lost their job because jobs are the most precious thing, one of the most precious things in the world even the most menial tasks. Now, if you've lost your job and, you, and you're not able to earn a living, the question is, you've got that feeling now, your only question now is, what are you going to do about it? So your feelings are your feelings, that's a fact. Now we come to the practical. You've got to make a strategy for coping. You've got to have a plan. And in order to get to that plan, you have to take responsibility for yourself. And you say, okay, it's up to me now. What am I going to do? Now, the way to do that is to write down everything that's concerning you with regard to work and making money. So there are simple models. One is called the GROW model, G-R-O-W. You can find it on the internet. G stands for goal. What's my goal? What's my objective? What outcome do I want? And you write down whatever it is you, that you want to get to. R stands for what's the reality on the ground? What are my skills? What do I like doing? What do I don't like doing? What resources do I have? Who do I know? Who can help me? Whatever you can think of, you write down stream of consciousness. What do I feel about that? What do I feel about that? What obstacles do I have to overcome? Everything. You write it down. And then from that, you say, what options do I have? And you write down as many options you can think of. Let me give you 
one example of a taxi driver that I met when I was taking a taxi the other day. He said, when the lockdown came, I had no business. He said, I thought about what can I do? He said, I had a spade. He said, I had, I printed a thousand flyers, which I distributed to homes in my neighborhood saying, I will do your garden. He said, I got three responses. And I went round and I did three gardens and people got to hear about me. And in the lockdown, I earned money from becoming a gardener, which I'd never done before. So he made a plan and that was one of his options. And I know it's exceptionally difficult, but there's no such thing as no plan. Your action is your de facto decision. Now, if it's possible that you really are in a bad way and you don't know where to start, you start with the status quo. You write down the status quo. My option is to sit here and wallow in self-pity. Is that what I want? And the answer will always be no. So I'm saying to your readers, it's very tough. I understand it, but it's up to you to do the best you can to make a plan to move from the status quo. And then the W, that stands for rap, and that stands for what am I going to do? Which plan, which option am I accepting, and how can I go forward? So, Arnie, may I just say, I think in just what you've said now, there's some really valuable lessons that we need to think about that I don't want our listeners on Thrive to lose. Number one, the importance of self-responsibility. You said that a number of times. You need to stop, take stock. Where have I been? Where am I going? How do I want to spend my energy from now on? And I am responsible for myself. On the other side of that, you also said ask for help and reach out if you need it. So what I think you're also saying is that there's a lovely statement that I like that says asking for help isn't giving up. Asking for help is not giving up. So you are saying use your network, your tribe, your support system. It's not shameful. It's necessary. You still have to do the work but understand support. Those were two things you said. The other thing which I need to learn a lot about, and I'm not very good at, and I know you say it a lot, is write things down. You really do believe in writing things down. Otherwise, you lose the lesson and you look at it and it becomes more of a reality check. So in those things, I mean, there were many things. I heard you say those important lessons which are important and that there's always a plan. So you're referring to a bit of an optimistic worldview, but realistic optimism, not pie-in-the-sky optimism. You're saying there's always a plan, get down, think of it, and think of an alternative way. Then I think the next one of the leg in the sea that you were about to talk about was health. Yes. You know, what's the point of having all the money in the world if you've got no health? Now, even if you've got no health, like let's take Stephen Hawking, 
you can still lead a productive life, which he did too. And he made a great contribution to humanity. But, you know, one never knows if he was happy or not, but I found that, you know, I've had a lot of health difficulties that if God forbid you get dementia or you get serious Parkinson's or any one of the really difficult health conditions, your, your life is greatly challenged. So I'm saying that health is one of the legs to have a happy life, one of the legs of the stool to be really happy. You can still have a full filled life, but if you've got money, health, and love, and love doesn't necessarily mean the love of one romantic person. It can be the love of your family, your children, your grandchildren, your community, your friends. You know, you can love your friends as much as you can love your children. But, and when you've got all three, health, love, and money, and they come together, I'm defining that as happiness. It's a, quite a fulfilled life. Now, Arnie, in the book, you've got many, many suggestions and thoughts around love, around how to deal with relationships, aspects of relationships that you think would not augur well and probably would result in some kind of breakdown of the relationship in the future and other aspects of relationship that you think are incredibly important that people need to highlight and develop for the sustenance of good relationships. Can you just talk about some of your relationship lessons and a little bit of how, how, to, how to put them into practice? Maybe a bit about how you learned them too. Sorry, I think... I go back, number one principle, you're responsible for yourself. And therefore, you're responsible for creating the right relationships. Now, I'll just talk about romantic relationship for the moment. Obviously, there's got to be strong chemistry. And within that, the single most important thing, there are lots of single most important things, is respect. Absolute respect for the other person. And what that means to me is no desire to control them. So when you eliminate controlling behavior, then you give the person fertile ground to grow because they know that they're in a safe space. You're not trying to control what they do. In fact, you're only there to support them. Does that depend on security, your security in the relationship and maybe security within yourself to say, I don't have to control the person to ensure that they follow me or that they I'm the central person in their life? It's absolutely got to do with being responsible for yourself, which gives you self-responsibility and self-esteem. Yes, it's got a lot to do with that. Jealousy and possessiveness, to me, are not love. They are, if I lose you, then I'm going to suffer. They're not 
what can I do to make your life better? Mm. So even if you don't have that much security within yourself, you can still not desire to control somebody else if, if you can do that. But real, almost unconditional love is always, it can always be a condition, is you are you, I'm here, I love you, how can I help you become the best you that you can be? Now, part of that is the way you talk to the people. And it's got to do with your tone of voice. Now, especially more in long-term relationships, um, you say, you know, didn't you see you, you spilt that? How can you be so silly? Or come on, hurry up, you're always late. You forgot to fill the kettle again. You know, this tone of voice is not conducive to loving relationships. It doesn't mean to say that you can't have them. And everybody gets a long-term relationship. There's ups and downs and the little arguments you have. But overall, when you speak in a gentle tone of voice, what you're making the other person feel is they're feeling good about themselves. And that is another single most important aspect of relationships. How can you make the other person feel good about themselves? And do they make you feel good about yourself? And the way you do that is through no criticism or outright criticism. There can be differences of opinion and no blame. Sorry if I can give you an example. I can only give you an example about myself because that's what I know. You know, my wife Ronnie drove into a pillar outside of our apartment. She knocked it down. She dented the car. She came in, sighed into the apartment, flustered. She said, my God, I've knocked down the pillar. I feel so stupid. I'm so sorry. So, so there are two conversations that can take place. Didn't you see the pillar? How could you be so silly? You should learn to drive. What's this going to cost us? My no-claim bonus is gone. Does she need that at that minute? The other conversation, Dory, which I'm proud to say that I had, was, darling, you look so flustered. Take a seat. I'll make you a cup of tea. It's not a big thing in life. I'll phone the insurance company. We'll get it sorted out. Now, forgive me for blowing my own trumpet, but I try and preach what I practice. Hmm. That's excellent. So the thing is, I'm sitting and listening to you, you know, hearing all of this. It sounds here we are, you and I are in conversation. We're offering this information to many people who listen to it. It kind of sounds, maybe I'm doing what you've just said, don't do. I don't mean to be critical. I mean to be questioning because listening to it, I'm thinking it's so important what Arnie's saying. I want more of the how. He makes it sound easy. Don't blame. Don't be too critical. Keep a nice tone of voice. Always make the other, or usually try and make the other person feel good about themselves. And yet, I think you and I both know, you did refer to it, that there are those moments 
where maybe you get hijacked by emotion or, you know, you, it's what I'm really saying to you is I wonder if it's easier said than done. That's what I'm asking you. How do you learn how to put this into practice? Okay. I think that I learned by A, observation, but B, when I was younger, say 50 years or 60 years younger, and people spoke to me in a certain tone of voice, I thought, wow, that doesn't make me feel good. Or if you're watching people around you arguing or talking not so nicely to other people. So for me, it's I'm talking to somebody like I would like them to talk to me. Now, how do you do that? It's got to do with habit. It's got to do with practice. And it's got to do with awareness. Am I aware that I just made that person feel very bad, very bad about themselves by making a snide remark? You know, why am I making the snide remark? To make myself feel better. So it's awareness of how you're speaking. Would you like to be spoken to in that voice? And for me, it's getting in the habit of no blame, no criticism. I mean, the person feels terrible already. Yeah, absolutely. What? You didn't get a second opinion on that. Why not? Hang on a minute. You know, I'm not feeling so good about this right now. Can I ask you something? Because I've witnessed you put this into practice many times, certainly in your primary, in your relationship with your wife. I've seen the way that you deal with children. And what has been most enlightening, actually, is that the way you deal with people who only a minute or two ago were absolute strangers and the effect that that has on them. So, for instance, you will, you know, you start talking to people or you make a comment like you notice that there was a family of three and they were all on their cell phones and not talking to each other. And the way you spoke to them was not critically or whatever, but you said something about the opportunity for good conversation. And about 20 minutes later, you were still talking to the family actually about something else, about cricket or whether it's someone who you phoned to book an air ticket with. On the phone, the conversation moves in a very friendly, connecting way in the face of how you engage with you quite quickly. So I also want to say to you that there was a saying that Ken Blanchard made many years ago in a book called The One Minute Manager. If you want people to reach their full potential, you catch them doing something right. And also that kind of backfires on you. So the more you are considerate of other people, whoever they might be, or you zero into an an incident, it comes back to you. They want to do things for you. So part of it is the promotion of other people. But can you talk a little bit about how that then reflects on the responses to you and the quality of your life in the face of it? You know, everybody wants to feel good about themselves. And if you can make someone feel good about themselves, you're doing that. That's what you're trying to do. So I found that a humorous remark is likely 
to make someone feel happy, humorous, if it's funny enough. So the incident you're referring to was a father and his two sons were all on their cell phones. So in a, in a joke, I said, tell me, do you guys ever talk to each other? And they laughed. Now, I believe you'll never laugh at the joke of someone you don't like. Therefore, if someone laughs at your joke, they're likely, they're likely to like you. Um, by the way, the joke may not be funny, in which case they won't laugh. But that particular instance, I immediately established rapport by saying something relatively funny. And then they wanted to talk. And then they spoke about cricket, which I love. And we thought it started talking about the test match. And that's how the conversation continued. But had they not liked the joke that I said, they would have just shrugged it off and I would have walked away. But making people feel good about themselves, a lot of that depends on how you greet them and the energy that you give out. So 40 years ago or 50 years ago, when I did yoga, my yoga teacher, I went into the room and he said, Ani, how are you? I said, I'm fine. He said, you can't be fine. He said, you've got to be wonderful. You've got to be super wonderful. You've got to be hyper super wonderful. I couldn't get to hyper super wonderful. But when people started asking me how I was, I said, I was wonderful. And what that did was that creates an atmosphere of, in a sense, joy rather than gloom. Who do you want to talk to? Someone who says, I'm wonderful. Or someone says, ah, things aren't great today. I mean, I've got a bit of a problem. But, I'm, you know, I'm not suggesting everybody walks around saying they're wonderful. But I am suggesting that when they meet people, they give out a positive energy. So can we talk to you about the title of the book, which you, you already referred to, look, when your wife knocked over the pillar, it's not a big thing in life. I'm, I'm interested in that because what is a big thing in life then? And what do you do when you want to connect with someone and you're not feeling wonderful and you want to be authentic and you want them to understand you and you want to be open and vulnerable for the development of a really connected relationship and you don't feel wonderful? So two questions, I guess. Number one, what is a big thing in life then? Right. I don't know, but I decided for myself and anybody else that a big thing in life is what you think is a big thing in life. Now, there can be objective, massive things in life. You know, the pandemic is a huge thing in life, but some people have benefited usually from it. So whatever you think is a big thing in life, at that moment, is a big thing in life. But the question is, how long does it last for? One of the themes of my book is Miss Havisham, who, in great expectations, the action takes place 30 years after she was left at the altar. The wedding table is still set. The clock is stopped. She's wearing her wedding dress. So for 30 years, she never moved. So for her, this big thing in life lasted 30 years. Now you could say to her, look, 
get a life. You're only 50. What about 10 years, five years, one year? It's a huge amount of time. A month. Okay, a month. Still quite a long time. A week, a day, an hour, and a minute, a second. Now, somewhere along that timeline, you need to take responsibility for yourself to move forward from the big thing in life. Now, some things can remain big things in life forever, and that could be appropriate. And I'm talking about major, major things that happen. But for most things, most instances that happen to you, you should be able to move on somewhere along that timeline. And that takes, once again, taking responsibility for yourself, writing things down, making the plan, and then you move on from what was the big thing in life. Now, I, I have this theory that today's embarrassment is tomorrow's anecdote. Because, you know, I can tell you a story had me 50 years ago, and it was huge. Today, it's an anecdote. So... Whatever you think is a big thing in life, it is. Whatever you're feeling about it is real. How long you hold on to that feeling for, in most instances, is up to you. At some point, at some point, you have a choice to move on to the next thing in life, which can move your life forward to a better life. At some point, you make that decision so that the that the big thing in life that was becomes less of a big thing. But most things are not big things in life when you think of the real big things in life. You know, you miss a two-foot putt, it's not a big thing in life. You break a glass, you... Yeah. In some sense, if you break a glass, it's a massive thing in life. <laughs> but... Um, He's talking about a wedding ceremony, by the way. I picked that up. You, yeah. You, you're five minutes late. You know, why does your wife scream at you? <laughs> it's not a big thing in life. Yeah. So on, I hear what you're saying. I think it's really important because you are not saying deny your feelings at the moment. The opposite. You are saying it's a big thing if it is. Whatever you feel is real. Whatever you think is a big thing in life is a big thing in life at that time. What you're saying is that maybe you never forget something. Perhaps it's a loss that you're dealing with, that it remains with you, the part of it, but you are able to still continue your life after a point. It is not, it doesn't stop your life. You kind of can begin to cope with what you perceived and what was because you perceived it a big thing in life going forward. And you said something that I think is incredibly important, and that is we don't feel it at the time, of course, but we do have choices. And as we go on, we realize that we do have choices. You make quite a lot of um, wonderful um, journeys in the book. You talk about from anxiety to action, from procrastination to progress from fear of failure to taking risks, from blaming others and having expectations to being responsible that we've spoken a lot about, self-doubt to self-esteem. I'd like you just to talk for a minute and then I'm going to ask you 
if you could have, say, some golden nuggets, three lessons, perhaps, or I'm not being prescriptive, okay? there are lots of lessons, but the thing that you want people to think about as they end our conversation, I like this one very much because I think we all fall into it. How do you stop beating yourself up from self-flagellation to self-compassion? So much of what we need now is please, we talk about it all the time, be self-compassionate. Don't be too hard on yourself because people are. I should be better. I should be stronger. I'm not enough. Other people are coping better. Why am I feeling like this? They experience shame and not enough self-compassion. So what would you say about the practice of self-compassion? And then what would be your golden nuggets? You know, for some reason, and I don't know what it is, maybe because when we were children, we were criticized or we were bullied or teased. We, we have this propensity to beat ourselves up. Now, and I'm the same, but it depends how long it lasts for. My strategy for that, my number one strategy for everything is I'm responsible for myself. My number two strategy is to count my blessings. Now, that it might sound trite, but I think about what I have achieved in life. I think about the wonderful blessings of my wife, my children, my friends, the fact that even though I've got major health challenges, I don't have pain, I'm still able to get out there. So counting my blessings already is soothing my the welts on my back. I try and have a sense of humour about my mistakes or about other things. You know, when I couldn't speak, I used to say things like, I wore these very brightly coloured shirts. The loudness of my shirt makes up for the softness of my voice. And then and I wasn't beating myself up about the fact I couldn't speak. There are also mantras which you can use and meditations, which I use, Louise A. You can find them on the internet. And one of the very powerful ones I used was you look in the mirror and you say aloud, I love you exactly as you are. I care for you in this difficult time. I am strong. I will get through this. And when I said I love you, exactly as you are. I felt very loving myself, but I felt very loved, like a wounded child being held by a loving parent. And I did that when I had my radiotherapy and I was in terrible pain. So that's, that's how you, comp you, you give yourself self-compassion. So I thank you very much for that. I think that that mantra that you practiced successfully and you still use throughout your life is a wonderful way to end this and to think about. And there's a lovely saying, it was actually by someone called Dr. Clarissa Piccolo-Estes, where she says, take care of yourself like you would a younger person that you love. And when you say that I felt loved by myself, it's a great thing to remember. Love yourself, self-responsibility, take care of yourself, make other people feel good. 
it really all comes back to you. Wonderful lessons. And on, please tell us where the book is available. The book is available in South Africa. It's available online or from most bookshops. And it's available on Amazon, anywhere in the world, in paperback or on Kindle. And if you go to my website, www.arniewitkin.com, there are links to where it's available. And they're also on my website, sorry, if I may say so. They're my blogs. I'm blogging on various subjects. Of course you may say so. And we're delighted that you are. Thank you. We could have made this double the time. There's so many wonderful lessons. Thank you for sharing them with us and offering us some insights of how to put them into practice to make this world and our lives and the lives of other people just a little bit better. Arnie, we appreciate you. Thank you very, very much. Thanks very much, Dory. Thank you. You've been listening to Thrive with Dr. D, a jackpot podcast. See you next time. I'm Dorianne Wheel. You've been listening to Thrive with Dr. D. 